Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. All this week, we're looking back at the top stories of 2017 on Smart Talk. Today's installment may not be a top story, but it does highlight a very popular feature of Smart Talk, Smart Talk Road Trips. Over the next hour, you'll hear some highlights from those live broadcasts on location. Last August, Smart Talk broadcast from the Rotunda at Pennsylvania State Capitol, where we were joined by Governor Tom Wolf. This was just a few weeks after a spending plan for the state was approved by the Republican-controlled House and Senate and allowed to become law by the governor. However, even though the governor was optimistic at the time of our broadcast that an accompanying package would be finalized to provide revenue for the spending, it didn't happen for another three months. The governor talked about the budget and answered other questions during the road trip broadcast. Under Pennsylvania law, a balanced budget is mandatory. So how can a budget with only a spending plan be legal? Yeah, the, the, um, it's, it's a good question. The, the um, uh, expenditure part in last year and this year, uh, both the, the spending and the revenue parts were passed separately. Well, this year the revenue part hasn't been passed yet. Uh, but last year, uh, the spending bill was passed on, I think, June 30th. And it took about a week and a half, two weeks to get to the point where we had the, the revenue bill. Uh, and so, it, constitutionally, the governor has 10 days to uh, allow a bill to become law or veto it or sign it. Uh, and I waited the 10 days and, and at the end of 10 days was convinced that, that the legislature would come back with the, the revenue package, so I let it become law. And the same thing happened this year so far. I've, we haven't gotten the revenue package, but the revenue or the appropriations package was passed overwhelmingly in both the Senate and the House by Republicans and Democrats. And so I had every confidence, and I continue to have every confidence that, that uh, the, uh, uh, the revenue package will come into being. But getting back to his question. Well, it was we, because I had every confidence that, that the revenue part would be there. It, actually, I think, and I'm not a lawyer, but, but revenues are coming in every day. The July, we just ended uh, July revenues uh, with the existing taxes in place. We're up 6.5% over last year, which is more than, than uh, you know, I think the, uh, uh, would be expected. It's certainly higher than the, the increase in expenditures, which is less than 1%. Yeah, it, seeing those figures that did come out yesterday, that is compared to last year mm -hmm. because we don't, we don't have, have revenue. Budget. We don't have revenue that, uh, to compare it to. Um, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious. I kind of wondered at the time, uh, maybe you talked about this, but I'll ask you now, why didn't you sign the budget? If you, uh, it was passed overwhelmingly by Republicans and, uh, and, and, and Democrats, House and Senate. I wanted, to, I wanted to try to get both of these things done, and, and I thought, by just letting it become law rather than signing it, could wait the 10 days and hope that within that 10-day period, the revenue package would be passed by the Senate and the House. Now, here's the, uh, the question from the audience. Is there a chance for a return to bipartisan cooperation to, uh, get, to use the art of politics as compromise? And uh, just wanted to know, you know, I've got to say that just my own observation, we're nowhere near what we see in Washington but we still do have uh, some politics going on here in Harrisburg. Well, we have politics, but that's not a bad thing. But let, let me point out what we've gotten done. I mean, we, we have put uh, 800, over $800 million into education in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, we have uh, done the first modernization of the liquor system since Prohibition. Now, I know if any of you are from out of state, 
buying wine or beer in the grocery store is not that big a deal. I grew up in Pennsylvania. It's a big deal. I got that done. We have legalized medical marijuana for, for families who are suffering from, from uh, the, the lack of that. Doctors now have that, that option. We have a bipartisan effort to address the opioid uh, epidemic. Uh, we're creating options for seniors uh, so that, that they can live in their homes longer. They have more choices. And, and we're doing a lot to, to create the, the infrastructure and the jobs that exist here. And, and so I, I look at, at what you know, we've done and, and compare that to not just Washington, but compare it to, to any prior administration. In two and a half years, in an overwhelmingly Republican Senate, an overwhelmingly Republican House, a Democratic governor, we've gotten some pretty amazing things done. Uh, the pension reform was just one thing that, that actually got, you know, rave reviews in the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. So we have compromised. We have worked together. Uh, and uh, politics is, is a, a matter of expressing disagreement and arguing and figuring out how to make things better. And I think for the most part, we've, we've done a pretty good job of that. What's changed in two years, though? Because that first year that you were in office, when there was a nine-month budget impasse, I mean, there was a lot of bitterness. It didn't seem like there would be an op- it, well, at least public. You know, what you, you're making faces. Yes, there was, Governor. I hate to tell you this, but there was. <laughs> bitterness <laughs> but is such a harsh term. I know it's a harsh term, but uh, still, it, it did not appear as if you would be able to work with Republicans in the Senate and the House. What's changed in two years? Well, I, I think, I think we, we have all learned a little more about each other, and, and there are obvious areas we disagree. And, and we've also found that there are clear areas where we can find agreement, and I think we've focused on those areas. So, again, if you look at all the things that, that we've gotten done here, some major pieces of legislation in just two and a half years, uh, and if you don't count the first six months, two years, we've gotten a, a lot of good things done. We're going to toss that six months out. Mm. Here's another one. Pennsylvania's population continues to grow older. Many, if not most seniors, will not have the financial resources to pay for their medical care. What plans does the Commonwealth have to provide pay for their care? Well, the, the, of course, seniors uh, over 65 are, uh, have access to Medicare, which is a federal program. Uh, when I became governor, I expanded Medicaid, which also helps a lot of seniors. Uh, and we have 700,000 Pennsylvanians, many of whom are seniors, who have health insurance now who didn't have it uh, two and a half years ago. Uh, so I'm, I'm continuing to, to look for ways to, to make our health care system uh, better, uh, bending the cost curve, but I'm also looking for opportunities to increase the number of people who are covered, and, which is why I... Uh, along with a lot of Republican governors, uh, have, have uh, worked hard to, to try to convince Washington not to just simply repeal the Affordable Care Act. We can make it better, but we can't just take these benefits away. Uh, in terms of things like long-term care, uh, creating options for seniors, uh, working with the Department of Human Services, which I hope to become the Department of Health and Human Services, um, to, to uh, actually allow uh, seniors to, to get the waivers they need to be able to stay in their homes longer. So I, I'm looking for more funding through things like expanding Medicaid, but I'm also looking to, to use the dollars we have right here in Pennsylvania, uh, because Pennsylvania is, like what, a 45% a supporter of Medicaid, uh, to, to use those dollars more wisely. So I'm doing both of those things. We always talk about money and, you know, we, we have to when it comes to 
what we're going to do for our older citizens. But as Pennsylvania does continue to age, and let's face it, we are one of the fastest growing states in the country with uh, as far as uh, an older population goes. Besides the money aspect of it, are there challenges that an older population presents for state government? Well, I mean, there's some, first of all, I'm 69 years old, so I'm a senior citizen. And I think, uh, yeah, we, we, we uh, uh, have some needs, physical needs, that, that maybe younger folks don't have. But we also bring wisdom. We bring a lot of resources uh, to the table. And I think Pennsylvania uh, is, uh, is the beneficiary of having uh, a, senior, a more senior population than, than many other states. And I'm, I'm really happy that, that, uh, uh, that, that Pennsylvania is such an attractive place for seniors to live. We have a great tax system, retirement income, 1099R income. It's not taxed at all in Pennsylvania. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful place to live. I grew up here. I, I love it, and I hope to live here as long as... God willing, I can. But I guess what I'm talking about is, you're right, that there are some challenges that as we grow older, we have health-wise. Alzheimer's disease, dementia is one that I think of. We're actually producing a program, Smart Talk program tomorrow on those topics. I mean, as this population does get older, those are things we're going to have to deal with. Sure. I mean, and, and we're, I think, uh, trying to do, do just that. The... the uh, uh, the opioid crisis, the opioid mm-hmm. epidemic uh, affects senior citizens just as much as it affects younger citizens because the gateway drugs are prescription drugs. So we need to figure out uh, all, all those things to, 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 uh, as we learn more about how we can address the needs of not just senior citizens, but every, every citizen at every age. Uh, I think we need to figure out, try to do a better job. And I'm, I'm trying to do that. I don't think, again, that having a senior, a more senior population uh, is something, uh, uh, anything other than a, than a, a blessing. And I think we, we ought to um, do the things that, that are, are unique uh, to, to the, the challenges of, of, of age. Uh, but uh, I think we ought to also celebrate the fact that so many senior citizens want to stay in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Anyone who has listened to my show on a regular basis knows I jump around from time to time to make it conversational. And uh, because we do have some time restraints today, Governor, I'm going to jump around on you. Is there anything that keeps you up at night? Well, yesterday I was uh, out in Bedford County. There was a a derailment of a a train that had uh, some, uh, one of the the tank cars actually uh, uh, burst with uh, liquefied propane gas. Uh, And so there was the fire yesterday and the fire as I just checked before I came down here is still burning. That's the kind of thing that keeps me up at night because that, that destroyed some homes and it threatened the lives of thousands of people. Uh, thank God nobody has died uh, and no one was injured. Uh, but those are the kinds of things that, that I think could happen anywhere, anytime, uh, and uh, whether it's a natural disaster, human disaster, human-made disaster, uh, those are the things that, that keep me up because there's not a whole lot you can do about things you just don't know. We try to prevent things, try to look at, like, train safety, try to make sure that, uh, I mean, I live on the railroad tracks, that, that, that trains that are coming in, into residential areas are as safe as they can be, uh, but you just never know, and accidents happen, and when they do, that's a, a, it can be a very sad and dangerous thing. So that's what keeps me up at night. Uh, you know, when you mention trains, uh, think about some of the tragedies that have occurred 
in other places around the country, and there was a really uh, horrible tragedy in Canada a few right. years ago. Now, right. there, that's usually with uh, trains carrying petroleum oil or something like that. That's, that's this one is. The carrying liquefied petroleum, liqu- right? Liquefied propane, but it's the same. same. Right. It's, it's, right. These are explosive uh, cars. One of the big controversies, especially in this part of the state in recent years, has been uh, pipelines, the construction of pipelines uh, that uh, are transporting natural gas, much of that natural gas going outside of Pennsylvania, being shipped overseas or, or to other states. What are your thoughts about pipeline construction in this state? Well, some of the pipeline construction is to actually use the gas here in, in Pennsylvania. But you're right. Some of it is to because we produce more than we can use here or probably ever will use. Uh, but they have to be just it's just like train safety the the, the things that, that we use to transport uh, volatile materials they have to be done right We've, we we want to make sure that we're not creating um, uh, uh, accidents uh, in advance so I, I take train safety very I take this pipeline very seriously right now uh, there is a, a controversy over the the Mariner East pipeline in southeast Pennsylvania. Uh, and the construction has been halted. I have spoken personally with the CEO of the of the pipeline company to express the the concerns and dissatisfaction that I'm hearing from uh, constituents in that area and from legislators here who represent those constituents. Uh, so uh, we need to to do this. We we need we understand that that if we're going to live the life we want to live with the things that we have here. Uh, uh, and on the way to a sustainable energy future uh, that we're going to be needing these these products. We're going to have to transport them, uh, and uh, we need to do everything we can to make sure we're doing this as safely as possible. Another question from our audience, uh, and didn't hear a whole lot about this in the budget bill that was passed by the Senate. Will the fees proposed for state police to cover municipalities that, that don't have their own police departments be included in this year's budget? doesn't look like it. I didn't think so. <laughs> Talk about that and why well, you, I mean, you propose $25 okay. this, per this person. Is, this is a group of very sensible people. And I think if, if I said to you there is no such thing as a free lunch, you'd nod your head and say that's true. We've all learned that. But there is such a thing as a free lunch. Tom Gross is here, was former chief of police in two municipalities in York County. Uh, but one of the things that we have here in Pennsylvania is if you decide you don't want to support your own local police, you can ask the state police to cover your area for free. Now, as you know, there is no such thing as a free lunch. So what practically happens is a lot of the funding for the state police comes out of the motor vehicle fund, and it means that we have fewer dollars to spend on bridges and roads. And if I have a Jeep, so I feel the bumps in the road. And I know we need to do a better job with our roads and our bridges. And so in the budget I proposed, I said, okay, let's just start the conversation. We all know it can't be free because it costs something. And it's costing us all who drive in bridges and, and roads. So how about $25 a person? Somebody said that's way low. Somebody said that's high. It's certainly higher than zero. But in the end, it didn't make, make it through the, the, uh, the cut. But I think it's the kind of thing that 
that I think we ought to look at as Pennsylvanians. It's just common sense, right? It's not, it's not partisan. It's not a Republican or a Democrat thing. It's just one of those things I felt like saying when I gave the budget address, hey, I'm just saying. It's not free. <laughs> just saying. And, and so let's start with $25. If you think that's too high, come up with your number. If you think it's too low, give me another number. I'm fine. But it's not free. I think we can just agree with that. And that's, that's what I was trying to do. And maybe it's, it'll be like the shale tax. I keep bringing it up and talking about it, and sooner or later someone will say, yeah, actually, maybe. You're going to bring it up again? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) One final question, because I know with it that we are short on time. Uh, This is from our audience as well. With so many governors voicing a strong commitment to Obama-era climate policies and the Paris Climate Accord, what is Pennsylvania's plan for climate policy and mitigating the impacts of climate change? That's a great question. I, I take the, the, uh, uh, the, the elements of the Paris Accord very seriously, and I think um, I want to make sure that, that here in Pennsylvania we're doing uh, substantive work, not just sort of saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to sign on to that, but really doing the substantive work. You know, in terms of our carbon footprint, we're actually ahead of the, the Paris Accord in terms of, in Pennsylvania, reducing uh, our carbon footprint. That, to me, is important. Signing on to something, if, if I signed on to something that had great symbolic value, but I wasn't doing the things that actually mattered, I don't think that would be responsible. So, you know, you have to pay some tribute to the, uh, the political sensitivities that, that exist out there, uh, and that you have to make choices. You have to make compromises. And the compromise here is, okay, I'm going to you know, uh, uh, not take the, the symbolic stuff as, as seriously as I am the substantive stuff. And I'm going to get I'm going to really get things done. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Ken Burns and Lynn Novick's monumental documentary, The Vietnam War, was one of the most talked about events of 2017. The 18-hour film was probably the most complete examination of one of America's most controversial wars. WITF produced a series of programs featuring central Pennsylvanians who fought in the war, protested the war, or lived through that period here on the home front. Last May, we made a Smart Talk road trip to Willow Valley communities, where we talked with three residents of Willow Valley. Retired Navy Captain Jerry Zacharias flew 87 missions in Vietnam and was awarded the Navy Cross for his actions on February 24, 1968. Willow Valley residents Paul and Sylvia Hollinger sponsored Vietnamese refugees. What happened on uh, February 24, 1968? Well, we were uh, uh, on Yankee Station flying strikes into the north sector of North Vietnam. We got a message from Commander Task Force 77 to uh, execute a strike against the Hanoi port facilities. And uh, they said because uh, uh, the Enterprise, which was our sister carrier on Yankee Station at that time, had only been on station for one day, they said make it a joint strike from Enterprise. So we launched two aircraft. Flew to Enterprise, did our mission planning for the strike to the uh, Hanoi port facilities right in downtown Hanoi. And uh, with the uh, air crews from Attack Squadron 35 on Enterprise. Uh, After our mission planning, we uh, hit the sack early, had an evening meal, and then hit the sack early. And uh, then we uh, had Brevely at uh, about 1230. Got dressed, went to the ready room of VA-35 and rebriefed the mission to Hanoi and uh, manned our airplanes about 1 o'clock and uh, launched about 1.30. Uh, I, on my uh, 
I was on the catapult at uh, 100% power, and uh, when they launched me, uh, my primary attitude reference, which gives, tells me which way is up, at nighttime you can't see anything outside the cockpit, it turned upside down. Uh, I went right to my standby gyro, which is a small gyro right here on the, uh, on the instrument panel, uh, climbed up to out, rotated to a climbing attitude, put up my landing gear and flaps, and then uh, headed for the tanker, which was over Enterprise. Tanker for your fuel? Yes. Okay. Got, get, a, get extra fuel for the long flight to Hanoi. I got up to the tanker. I was, because of my system problems of the uh, primary attitude reference turning upside down, I was the last one to tank. I went to plug into the tanker. All the lights in the tanker went out. It had electrical failure and could not transfer fuel. It's a bad day, isn't it? Bad day. <laughs> I was, this, that's the second thing that happened in the first 10 minutes of this yeah, really? And I thought, this isn't going to be my night. Well, I... With no primary attitude reference and no extra fuel for the long flight to Hanoi, I thought I'd better talk it over with my bombardier navigator to see what our options were. After our talk, we decided to try to do an airborne alignment of the inertial platform so I could get my, inertial, uh, my primary attitude reference back. 22 minutes later, we got a uh, ready light on the inertial platform. I checked my fuel. It's going to be close, but I thought we had enough to do it. To go to Hanoi. To go to Hanoi. Okay. So we headed into the uh, uh, mountains southwest of Hanoi. Uh, during a letdown, I could hear the, uh, I call it the crickets chirping. That's a surface-to-air missile radar starting to track us. I leveled off at 200 feet in the flatlands of the Red River Delta. And uh, I was going about uh, 450, about 350 knots, about 407 miles an hour. I was fairly comfortable at 200 feet inbound, and I saw two missiles lift off at 11 o'clock coming toward us, and my missile warning receiver uh, and a a missile warning light start flashing in your eyes, and you get a warbling tone. When that missile is airborne and it's getting guidance signals, you get that noise in your headset. Uh, I told my bombardier navigator I'm going down to 100 feet. I got down to 100 feet. I had already gone to full throttle. I'm, I'm doing about 500 miles an hour now. I'm at 100 feet, and I got down uh, to 100 feet, and I uh, could see things whizzing by the left-hand side of my cockpit. I said to myself, geez, those must be farmhouses. Just then, my bombardier navigator said, you're level at 50 feet. Oh, I wow. said, Roger, going back to 100 feet. I watched those missiles coming toward us, and uh, when I thought they were close enough, I rolled into 89 degrees of bank. I dropped chaff. Chaff is strips of aluminum foil, and they uh, provide uh, some protection from the missiles. Uh, Hopefully the missiles would explode on that chaff and not on the the aircraft. And I did a high G turn. That's a 6G turn to the right. And one one missile coming at us went right to the space we just vacated. The other exploded underneath the aircraft, uh, buffeted it violently, and put a small hole in our left wing. And then my bombardier navigator says, you're heading to the target. It's 354 degrees. I rolled out on 354 degrees, doing about 515 miles an hour. Approaching Hanoi, there's so much anti-aircraft fire going up that I could see the outline of the Red River flowing through Hanoi. And we're bombing the port facilities at Hanoi. And I know we're right on track for the target. At 4.20 in the morning, I dropped my 18 Mark 36 destructors, 
Those are magnetic aerial mines, an area denial weapon on the port facilities. Uh, Two airplanes before us, VA-35, were going, after they dropped their weapons, were going right up the Red River uh, and staying over that Red River to head north of the city. We were not going to follow them because we figured everybody's going to be shooting over the Red River by the time we got there. We're going right over the center of Hanoi at 400 feet. A roll to the outbound heading of about two, three, uh, two, three, five degrees after bomb drop. And uh, I could see lots of anti-aircraft fire shooting straight up in the air. At nighttime, it's strictly barrage fire. They're shooting straight up in the air, hoping you fly through it. And uh, I'd pick two anti-aircraft sites, fly right in between them. As soon as they passed, I'd pick two more and fly right in between them. And... Uh, uh, as the anti-aircraft fire started to diminish on the outskirts of Hanoi, I turned to my bombardier navigator and said, Hey, Mike, we're home free. No sooner than those words left my mouth than the missile warning receiver went off. Yeah, you jinxed it. <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I said, How? Oh, I immediately thought, How am I going to know when to stop my evasive maneuver? Those missiles are coming from behind us, and I can't see them. Well, it didn't take long to find out. As... Uh, as they approached the aircraft with that wrong, long rocket plume from those surface-to-air missiles, it starts getting light in the cockpit. I said, I think it's time. I rolled into 90 degrees of bank, dropped chaff, pulled a 6G turn, did 90 degrees of turn, reversed my turn, dropped more chaff. And in that second turn, one missile went over us. Another one exploded in a farmer's field right below us in a brilliant fireball that just wiped out my night vision, almost blinded me. I rolled wings level, headed for the mountains. We landed back aboard Enterprise at 5 o'clock in the morning with 15 minutes fuel remaining. Did and you go to the bathroom first? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. That is quite a story. Yeah. We did have some aircraft losses in our deployment. Uh, we lost two aircraft in the VA-75, but our sister squadron and Enterprise lost six aircraft, 50% of our A6As. They lost their commanding officer and their executive officer. Well. Even though we had, it, uh, had those losses, I think we had it pretty good. We flew in an air-conditioned cockpit, got three hot meals a day, and slept between sheets at night. The guys that had it tough in that war were the ones that had to fight it on the ground. And my hat is off to them. Captain Zacharias, that's, that is an amazing story. And I am uh, thank you very much for your service. And, uh, I, you know, I hate to use the word luck. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> a lot of <laughs> because luck. Because you showed, a, well, there's some luck involved, but you used a lot of skill yeah. that, that, that night as well, or that morning as, as well. And um, I'm sure that those people, your, your crewmates, uh, appreciated your skill yep. that day. Yep. So how many missions did you fly? 87. 87. Yep. Was that the most harrowing? Uh, that was the most interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of an understatement, yeah. putting it that yeah. way. Well, thank you very much for, for telling your story. Okay. And you, you are a Willow Valley resident, right? Yes, I am. Uh, I've been there for 13 years, and it's a great place. And it's a lot more comfortable than that cockpit, uh, I'm uh, sure. I'll say. <laughs> well, let's talk to a couple other Willow Valley residents. The Hollingers hosted an engaged Vietnam, Vietnamese refugee couple in 1975. 
Many people, when they think about the Vietnam War here in central Pennsylvania, will remember the Vietnamese refugees that came to Fort Indiantown Gap in 1975 and then were resettled throughout the country. Tell us your story. How did you, uh, why did you decide to sponsor a refugee family and just how did it happen? During those years, I was managing WDACFM, the voice of Christian. Which is right down the road here. And urging our listeners that all of us listening are refugees or descendants of refugees. And there are those now at Indiantown Gap. And would you have either your family or your church sponsor these refugees into our community? And then that was recorded, and I heard my own announcement, and I felt guilty. Well, uh, he came home, and he said, I'm feeling guilty today. I'm asking our listeners to do something that we could do. We had a big farmhouse. We had room. I was happy he said it because I was thinking the same thing. And so that's how we first put our names in and uh, made a couple trips to Indiantown Gap and took into our home. They were newlyweds. They had, had gotten married at Indiantown Gap. They had, uh, he had to get out fast with his life. To, uh, to save his life because he was with the military. He had been trained over here in the States as a pilot, but uh, he knew his life wouldn't be worth anything when Saigon fell. Who is he? What? Oh, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, well, their names were Chung and Ta Do, and um, we brought them home to the farmhouse, and from the time they walked in the door, they were part of our family. What I think probably one of the big questions that many people had at the time, and maybe even since, why? Now, you're very, you were very involved in, in the church, WDAC, Religious Christian Radio Station, but why? Why did you want to do it? Why is that? Well, simply because um, our commission by Christ is to go into all the world. Here, the world had come into us. And this was an opportunity to serve God, to serve Christ, by taking these people into our family. And um, as it turned out, uh, they themselves were Christians and are still devout Catholic Christians. And we've been privileged to have all three of their children's weddings in Southern California, where there are now a million refugees from Vietnam, uh, to their weddings And just last week, they were in this auditorium to hear and see the last half of our Corral concert. So there's been a a love relationship, real family relationship uh, to this family. Only seven of the maybe 11 in that family came and merged with our 15. Mm -hmm. So it's just a wonderful uh, blessing as it turned out to uh, have had this experience with the Chungatal Doe and their family. Take me back to 1975, though, when the couple came to your, your farmhouse. I mean, it's, it's a culture shock to begin with, coming from uh, a foreign country to the United States to begin with, but coming from one that, as we heard earlier, had been invo- torn by war mm. for decades. Mm. And... Now, in 1975, as Saigon is falling, uh, South Vietnam Vietnam is is falling. And as you said, a lot of people's lives in danger. 
tell me about them and becoming part of your family in 1975. My first thought when we brought them home was, we'll have to live differently. And Paul said, no, we'll live exactly the way we always have. We'll make them part of our family. Why did, wait, excuse me, can I interrupt for just one sure. second? Why, why did you think you had to live differently? Well, I knew, I knew it would be such a culture shock for them. And so I thought we'd have to be more formal or something. And we just decided, no. We had a 15-year-old and a 12-year-old. And um, our 15-year-old daughter would come home from high school go upstairs to her bedroom. The guest room was across the hall from her bedroom. And she'd be up there for hours, only to come down in time to eat. And I'd say, what were you doing all that time? And she'd say, I was talking to Tall. Tall didn't speak a word of English. (laughs) She wanted a captive audience. (laughs) But she was 20. Carrie was 15. She was like a big sister. And uh, they just became our children. And to learn about their culture, sometimes cooking side by side, um, to eat some of their food. (laughs) What what do you love? Chatyal. It's like a spring roll, but it has pork and other things in it, and nothing can compare. (laughs) So you learned a lot, too. Oh, we sure did. And when they were up there talking, they had a Vietnamese to English uh, translation uh, Dictionary. Dictionary. So that's how they learned each other's languages somewhat. Did they have uh, a lot of trauma? I mean, was there a lot of healing on their part? I think so. They didn't talk about it. I I look back and I think we didn't really talk a lot about what they had come through. Um, I don't even know how they managed to re-get together. Uh, They were engaged, but they got out separately. Um, but they could not leave Indian Town Gap, and we went back years later to see those barracks, and boy, they weren't very glamorous, and they couldn't leave till they were sponsored, and I have to say they are the best at showing gratitude. They have, in 42 years, they've never stopped thanking us, and in a way, I say they have thanked us with their lives Mm -hmm. because they are so productive and and so hard-working two and three jobs at a time. And they raised their children to be so polite and thoughtful. And uh, we're just so proud of them. They became citizens years ago. That is something that uh, you did hear often about the Vietnamese Mm -hmm. refugees who are at Indian Town Gap, about how grateful they really were. And again, think about the experiences that they had growing up and especially, you know, being involved in the, in the military. But that was one of the first things I remember the time distinct. I lived just a few miles down the road from Indian Town Gap at the time. And I remember distinctly, that was the first thing that everyone said about the Vietnamese refugees is that these people just appreciate what they, even living in those barracks. And you're right. If you, I mean, those, there are, those are Spartan barracks, that's they for really sure. Are. They were you know, they built really in the 1940s. For, she, uh, she wept when yeah. she returned. Yeah. She wept hard. Mm. At, but their son, when he was 16, had a banner in his bedroom, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he and his wife are in the diocese ministry pretty much ever since in the Catholic Church, in the Vietnamese Catholic Church in Southern California. So how did they get to Southern California? 
by way of Texas. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> they so had, they went southwest first. Yeah. And, they, yeah. they went down there first for just a couple of years, but they already knew some Vietnamese. They kept contact with people, Friends. and then there were so many in San Jose, and that's where they ended up. Do you have time for a really quick story? Sure. With them last week was their little two-year-old grandson. He was born very prematurely because his mother, their youngest daughter, his mother, um, her blood pressure went sky high and they had to take the baby. And Tall, now the grandmother, kept telling me when they were here, she would cup her hands and say, oh, so small, so small. I cry and cry and I pray God and I cry and cry. And then she said, in Vietnam, and she just threw her hand away, but she said, in America. And it, it was her way of saying how grateful they are they're here because that little grandson wouldn't be here if he had been born in Vietnam. Many of our Smart Talk road trips took us to places where history was made. In May, we broadcasted from the Museum of the American Revolution in Philadelphia two weeks after it opened. CEO Mike Quinn joined us. This has been a labor, as you said, of longer than the revolution. And uh, we think we have created an, inc- an amazingly exciting story that brings to life the real people of the revolution and people from all walks of life. And it, it, it makes you understand how dramatic this period in our history really was. I mean, it, it really was a life and death period. And it wasn't like, you know, sending your sons off to war. The war was around you. Everyone, um, children, women, they were part of this war. One of the most noticeable parts of uh, the exhibits, the museum itself, just what you said, how it focuses on people. Very often over the years when we've read a textbook, we've seen movies or documentaries about the Revolutionary War, it focuses on the military aspects of that. Now, granted, there is that here. But that focus on people really gets, gives you a sense of what it was like, what that period was like, what the war was like for and many people that uh, a lot of Americans today probably don't think about. But it really does, does give you a sense of what Americans at that time were feeling and living. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you're right. You know, um, Typically, people look at the, the military aspects, and there's a good reason for it, which is that we were fighting unbelievable odds. Um, one historian said that there is probably no war in history that was more improbable at the time, and yet um, from the perspective of 200 years seems more inevitable. Um, but our real goal was to make you realize that this is people just like us today, people from all walks of life, uh, people who made a decision, who are inspired by that call for independence, that call for liberty, the standard of equality, the promise of the Declaration of Independence, inspired by that to find a shared commitment to fight for independence and to sustain that for eight years of warfare. Um, And we want you to understand how powerful that idea was that this war, this nation was created by individuals making decisions, taking actions, and that's true today. It's people who make history. It's not broad events. It's people. Slavery is most often thought of in relationship to the Civil War. But slaves, blacks, and African Americans had roles in the Revolutionary War as well. 
in particular slaves from Virginia that were caught between the two sides during the British invasions of 1781. There's an exhibit here at the Museum of the American Revolution that commemorates that history. It's called Finding Freedom, and joining us is one of the people instrumental in putting this exhibit together. Dr. Gregory J.W. Irwin is a military historian, author, and professor of history at Temple University here in Philadelphia. Dr. Irwin, thank you very much for being with us today. Great to be here. As I just said, this was part of the revolution you don't hear a whole lot about. Slavery, most people think about the antebellum period and the time leading up to the Civil War, the Civil War itself. But let's talk about slavery in the United States, what well, wasn't the United States then, but the colonies, leading up to the war. Well, it's, it's history that, that hides in plain sight, because at the time of the Revolution, one out of every five Americans was black, and most of them were slaves. And slavery was not just consigned to the South. Most slaves lived down there because of the plantation system, but slavery existed throughout the 13 colonies. And you can see snippets. Uh, you can see black people in the background of paintings. You can see their artifacts. There are plenty of references to them in the documents. But a lot of historians, like other people, when they research something, they've already decided what they want to find. And they block out a lot of the things that are there that, well, shouldn't be blocked out. Something that uh, Dr. Irwin just said that I hope a lot of people noticed, slavery in the 13 colonies. At that time, it was not just in the South. No, it was not just in the South. Uh, but most slaves were in the South, and when the British invaded the South, they were amazed by the large number of blacks who took advantage of their presence to make a bid for freedom. What happened in 1781 in Virginia? Well, in 1781, uh, several British invasions occurred in the largest, richest, and most populous of the 13 states. The first was led by Benedict Arnold, uh, the uh, traitor who'd become a British general. He was a British general. And he becomes time. the first Yankee. Uh, he's Connecticut-born to capture Richmond, Virginia on January 5th, 1781. But wherever his ships go, wherever his troops put ashore, slaves flock to the British. Um, uh, the... the uh, uh, exhibit here uh, focuses on one of them. I came across the letters of a Quaker slave owner who wrote to Arnold asking him to return the slaves he had borrowed, including this likable 14-year-old boy named London. And he's such a great kid, and I'd really like to have him back. And he was probably misled by his uncle, so, so please return him. Um, Subsequent research, though, um, in a document known as the Book of Negroes, which listed all the blacks that the British shipped out of New York after the war was over, likable London became a British soldier. He enlisted in Benedict Arnold's American Legion as a trumpeter and fought against the people who were enslaving him and his kin. And this is important because during the Revolution, Americans of all backgrounds are confronted with a variety of choices. They're in a variety of circumstances. And you don't have one revolution going on. You have a bunch of parallel revolutions. But they're all Americans trying to live their dream of freedom. And it's messy. And it's confusing. And it's like today. Because <laughs> we're all headed in different directions. That's what I was thinking as you were yeah. mentioning <laughs> One thing uh, about the exhibit, and it is so noticeable because over the years in the textbooks, in the documentaries we've seen, the portrayal of the revolution, you see all white faces in uniform. Uh, but in your Finding Freedom, Freedom exhibit, 
Is it London that is portrayed in London? The... London is, is the, 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 the fellow in the red coat and the life-sized exhibit. Then there are five interactive um, 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 exhibits, and you can follow uh, the lives of five different slaves, including, uh, well, f- four slaves and one free black, uh, including London, and find out uh, what happened to them and what, uh, what choices they made at different parts of the war and how that worked out for them. But it is, it, it is very noticeable when you see that black face yes. in, in yes. a red coat in, in, in the British uniform. But it wouldn't have been that unusual back in 1781 or 1776. Lots of black faces were part of the, the cast of characters in, in the revolution, including a number who served uh, on, on the side of the patriots, too, uh, just like the Indians. Uh, people were making the best bargains they could with uh, the circumstances that confronted them. All right. You mentioned the Indians. Uh, in the history of this museum, one of uh, the entities that got involved from the very beginning was the Oneida Indian tribe. Uh, we didn't go through the history of the museum because it has, it's quite a story itself. But the Oneida Indian tribe wanted to contribute a million dollars toward this museum when it originally was going to be constructed in Valley Forge. Uh, there was some back and forth about uh, you know, where the museum could be built, how big it could be. National Park Service had some roles. Eventually, it, it, it came to Philadelphia. There is an exhibit about the Oneida Indians. The Oneida Indians fought alongside the Continental Army, the Americans. Now, there were other tribes that were enemies, but I have to say that this probably, it's just a guess, is probably one of the only museums in America that portrays that and tells that story. The United themselves are very happy that story is being told. And it, it, it presents a council of tribal elders discussing what, what side should the Oneida back? Uh, there's at least one saying a pox on both their houses. You know, we should just sit back and let them kill each other. And there are others uh, talking about other options. One great thing about it is that it shows that in, in the governance of the Oneida, it wasn't just male voices that were heard. It was female, female voices. Abigail Adams asked John Adams to remember the ladies when uh, the Continental Congress was putting together this new country called the United States. That didn't happen. It did happen among that, that, that Indian, those Indian people. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Booby's Brewery in Mount Joy is where we learned about some history of brewing and beer with Sam Allen, Booby's owner. You used the word lager. That is something today that uh, us beer drinkers mm-hmm. are used to hearing so often. But there's a reason that lager became lager. Mm-hmm. Tell me about it. Well, uh, in your next segment, these guys will perhaps go into what we're doing we're with the place about now. Brewing, right. uh, now, but uh, going back in history, throughout history, what people made since uh, ancient Mesopotamia, when uh, the people of the Holy Lands would store, make a grain beverage as as part of their staple diet, they, they harvest grain and sometimes stored it in liquid and and made a beverage that they could drink. Well, when that beverage fermented, they had beer, and that goes back thousands of years. Uh, and we call that beer they were making, essentially, we call that ale. Uh, and ale, everyone's heard of ale, but maybe not everyone realizes that there are two major kinds of beer, and ale was the only one for most of history. 
Well, in the Middle Ages, uh, some monks in the monasteries of southern Germany started experimenting, as monks often do with interesting things like alcoholic beverages. Uh, and, uh, Did they, they still uh, do that? <laughs> they, had, they had the time and the motivation, so I, I think you it's kind of You had to stay quiet. So, you know. <laughs> and uh, one thing they had under, mo- under large monasteries is large cellars, which is not a coincidence that we're sitting in a cellar here in a brewery of this uh, nature. But the... Uh, the monks started using a different kind of yeast, and they noticed that this beer they made with this different kind of yeast, it fermented a little more slowly and better when it was fermented in their cellar. And then they noticed if they made a big batch and stored some of it, that it tasted better after two months. It just it was, they noticed that that was distinctly better, and this is something you don't do with ale. But the word for store in German, in this sense, is lager. That's, uh, when you lager something, you're storing it. This that we're sitting in is a lagering cellar. It's meant to imitate the, uh, the big cellar underneath the monastery where they would have kept their beer cool for a couple of months and let it age. And that's what we're in right now. We're in a so lagering cellar. that ties us to Mr. Booby and yes. Mr. Booby coming to America. Tell mm. me about that. Uh, America didn't... Lager beer was only in southern Germany that I was talking about for 500 years, the Middle Ages up until maybe the mid-1800s. And one of the unique things about our country is that people come here from everywhere. Uh, Lager beer brewers from southern Germany didn't even go to northern Germany or anywhere else. They were just in mid to southern Germany for centuries. And that was the beer of that area. If you went some other where else, to Belgium or Ireland, you were drinking ale. Well... In the, around the 1850s, you guys might be able to help me with this, uh, some, in Philadelphia, uh, I think uh, some lager beer breweries, brewers found their way over here, decided to start making lager beer. They had to get lager yeast from back in Germany. That was a trick getting it over here because they still had to come by boat, and it had to last for six or eight weeks or however long it took. And uh, they began brewing in about the 1850s with lager yeast and made lager beer. And at first, what started as a trickle, uh, but a lot of Germans in this country by then, right. uh, turned into a flood. Uh, it just became a sensation. Um, it was a fad, uh, this new beer. This new beer was, instead of being warm and cloudy looking, it was cool and clear. And it was cellar-aged, and you could see through it, which was new and, and very enticing for people. They, they, they thought this was great. Now, we're used to cold beer now, but in 1800, you didn't drink a cold beer. You just drank beer at room temperature. That's, and they had done that forever. But this cool, clear beer became uh, all the rage. So the word got back to Germany, to young brew apprentices. Hey, Americans love this beer we've been making here. It's our beer, we've always made, they want it. So instead of going anywhere else, they came to America first, populated the country. There were lager beer breweries in Texas and Oregon, you know, everywhere. Uh, but here in the Northeast, there were the vast majority of them. And uh, this is just one of those. But I like to tell people in context, Mr. Booby's contemporaries had names like uh, Adolphus Bush, uh, Adolf Coors, uh, Friedrich Miller, uh, Friedrich Pabst. Uh, these were contemporaries of Mr. Booby. Young guys came from Germany, wanted to make beer in this country. And uh, just the one, what makes our place unique is it still looks like when Mr. Booby was here. Mr. Mr. Miller's Brewery and Mr. Coors Brewery don't look like they a little, did. A little bit different. <laughs> they look a little, little bit different, different now. <laughs> but they, when they started their breweries, they looked much like this. Thank you for listening to Top Stories of 2017 on Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar.